This is the East TraumaCast. TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Martin. We're here with a great trauma cast today. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, something I think that's not often discussed enough among physicians and particularly surgeons, and that's issues around uh, medical malpractice. Uh, lawsuits, and uh, also talking a little bit about the role of practice management guidelines like the East PMGs and how those can play into uh, litigation issues. Uh, I've got a co-moderator here with me who's one of my uh, partners, Dr. Matt Eckert. He's a trauma critical care surgeon here at Madigan Army Medical Center. Uh, Thanks for co-moderating, Matt. Uh, and then we have we have two great guests today. Uh, first, we have Dr. Chet Morrison. He's a trauma and critical care surgeon, currently at Lancaster General Health in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, he's a former Army surgeon who trained at William Beaumont Army Medical Center uh, and graduated in 1997. He did his fellowship at the University of Maryland, uh, and before coming to Lancaster, he was surgical faculty at Michigan State. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Chet. You're quite welcome. It's great to be here. Uh, and then we have our our double threat uh, guest, Dr. Carlos Reyes, uh, MD, also JD. Uh, he is a uh, emergency board certified in emergency medicine and pediatrics at UCLA. Uh, he also then went on to graduate from Southwestern Law School in 2010, uh, and he's a currently practicing attorney and a member of the California State Bar and a recognized national expert on uh, medical malpractice and litigation issues. Uh, and we really appreciate appreciate you being here with us, Carlo. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. All right. And uh, we'll get started. Uh, first, I think we should start with a disclaimer. Uh, Carlo, I think we want you to agree that you will not sue us for anything we reveal on this trauma cast. <laughs> <laughs> I promise not to sue. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's start and just talk about some common factors that you see in malpractice suits that are that are brought against surgeons. Um, you know, there's there's probably a, a couple common factors, although every suit is different. Uh, maybe you see some patterns or some things that might expose you to uh, increased risk of a malpractice suit. Uh, why don't we start with you, Carlo? Sure. There's there's um there's, there's there are several important factors. I think that um, you could break them down into a, a couple of uh, major headings. Um, I like to think of them as documentation pitfalls. Uh, communication pitfalls, and then standard of care pitfalls. So those are the three, uh, as I see it, uh, kind of broad headings. Um, you know, in this era of electronic medical record, uh, documentation has become very difficult. And I think that it's very easy uh, to miss uh, certain docu- documentation from nurses or consultant notes. Uh, the EMRs have a sea of information in them. And unfortunately, we're charged with really being able to view all important information, which can be sometimes difficult based on the EMR that you have. So that's one big uh, pitfall is really understanding your EMR, being able to get access to all the information you need in order to make uh, important uh, clinical decisions. Uh, Communication pitfalls is probably the biggest issue. So one of the things that I see regularly 
you know, uh, doctor-patient communication, physician-to-physician communications, such as pass-ons, uh, doctor-nurse communications, meaning is there any discordance between the, the, their documented notes, and, and that's another big heading. And then finally, standard of care. I mean, you know, we're, you know, as, you know, experts in our fields, we're charged with understanding standard of care, and that in and of itself is a challenge because that's a evolving, uh, you know, medicine is obviously evolving. Sure. So, uh, so Chet, uh, any anything to add to that? Some some common things you've seen from yeah. litigation. Yeah, it is. I would also. I mean, well, first of all, I certainly agree with um, everything that Carlos is saying. The other thing is, I would add in some soft factors too that I've noticed around. First of all, besides the obvious one that um, you know, lawsuits tend to stem from a lot of bad outcomes, and certainly uh, outcomes that are unexpectedly bad. So there's some some, law, some some litigation comes from expected bad outcomes, but a lot of it I've seen is the unexpected bad outcome, which is not you know always preventable. But the soft factors are that a lot of times patients will sue or their family members will sue when they are angry, they feel let down by the system, they let feel let down by the surgeon, their expectations were not um, met. They uh, have had some negative interactions with the surgeon or with uh, some of the other caregivers or the hospitals. And um, alongside that, there are sometimes some family dynamics and other interactions, which is the medical person you can't control, but that also may be sort of generating this. And I've found that it's not infrequent where there's lawsuits that there's interfamily conflicts going on and that um, the, they, they sometimes have a role to play in how the family deals with the medical establishment, how they deal with the medical personnel taking care of their patient, um, and particularly if the patient is incapacitated and they've been power of attorney and there's some family dynamics there. Um, and the last one I kind of want to bring up, because I've seen this a couple of times, is sometimes there can be some loose talk, which, you know, you as the surgeon can't control, but I specifically made a note to myself there to kind of mention this is that sometimes when there's a bad outcome, it's not a bad thing to go through your team and the nurse managers and say, you know what, this is really not a good person to be discussing in the elevator. This is something that you really kind of want to um, kind of keep a lid on and, and, and not engage in some loose talk and speculation where somebody, maybe someone you don't know, a friend that you're not aware of, or a relative that you know, might not know can overhear this. And I say this because I've actually seen it show up in depositions where it comes in. Now, you know, obviously, medical legally, hearsay is not admissible, but it certainly does register on the part um, on the part of people. So those are some also soft factors that go, I think, into generating some lawsuits. Not all of them, as I mentioned, are really controllable by the surgeon, but at least one can sort of be aware of that. And again, it will come up. I see it come up periodically in depositions and uh, uh, outcomes of cases. Those are great points, and uh, and and I want to go back real quickly to the communication area because I agree with you, Carlo. That that's probably one of the more important and common ones. So, so what are the communication factors that we can do as you know trauma surgeons? We we let's say we've had a bad outcome. You know, what are, what are the things we can do communication wise that that will either help us or hurt us? Uh, yeah, you know, and, and this is a very good expansion on the communication because I think that all that, uh, Chet, that was you that said that, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Chet, what you said was was really expanding on the concept of what our problems are with communication. I think as physicians, we 
we want to cure and we want to heal and we have high expectations about what we can do and sometimes we transfer that expectation to the patient, family or the patient when we really, what we really should be doing is giving a very, very kind of, in a way, a blunt, um, real, realistic um, kind of analysis or evaluation of a prognosis. And um, and that's a harder that's a harder thing to 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 communicate uh, to a patient or a patient's family. Um, so I think that's one thing is being very realistic. You know, when I when I see a patient in the ER that's that's very sick, I, I, I in a way I, I don't color I don't uh, I don't sugarcoat it, and um, I, I give them what I think is if it's a bleak prognosis, I tell them right away. And I see some doctors that do a great job doing it, you know. And then I see others that that all automatically think of it as an opportunity not to speak to the patient because of whether it's fear of communicating bad news or things like that. So I think a real conversation, trying to connect with the patient and patient family in these very difficult times actually helps, first of all. The second thing is that it, you know, we really do need to treat all this information, not from just a HIPAA standpoint, for example, but really from a, a patient respect perspective. I think that when patients and families feel that we've disrespected them in some way, then yeah, that's when, as Chet says, that's when they get really upset at us. So a lot of it is in our mannerisms, a lot of it is how we treat patients. And if, you, if there's a way to connect with a patient and patient's family, I think that's probably the most important thing in, in demonstrating to the patient and patient's family that you're really trying to do everything you can for the patient. Sure, so, so Chet, there's a, Common belief, and I'll call it a myth, that uh, you know you you have a bad outcome, a complication, uh, but that you should never apologize, you know, to the family, and that can be held against you. Uh, do you believe in that? Do you think we should? I mean, are, are we okay to apologize and recognize our mistake? Um, I would say that um, uh, as a broad principle, the answer is yes. Um, and first of all, one of the things that I, I can't resist amplifying on, on Carla's point, you know, especially to make this relevant to trauma surgeons, is that in the beginning of an operation or when you, you, you meet a patient, you may not have time to do a lot of communicating, uh, particularly if you're rushing someone off to the operating room. But then, you know what, then that's a good opportunity after the operation is over, and then there maybe they're in the intensive care unit being resuscitated to then say, okay, not only do I want to communicate with them, but in a sense, I want to make up the time to really tell them exactly what was going on. And a lot of times, you know, to get the to, – to, to really bring them on to the depth of the problem. And then so uh, along those lines, if there is a genuine mistake or something that um, has a bad outcome, yeah, I do believe in that because it's sort of been my experience that – I'm not going to say that a lot of times people will find out about the mistake. It's actually fairly clear that a lot of times um, they don't. But I think that there's a real possibility. And I think probably as we move to more open records, that probability is only going to grow, that they are going to find out about the mistake. And one of the things that I think you could – that I, I think poses a substantial litigation risk is if the patient and or the family feel you have been deceitful to them and have not told them about what is happening. And that may be fair or unfair, that, um, that that perception may be justified or not. But that's something that I think people need to keep in mind, that if they think you have been deceptive to them, they will be really quite upset. And uh, I, I think that 
to try and give the manner of being open and honest as possible. I personally think it's a good thing, and that's something I try to do in my practice. Okay. Well, uh, we'll move on. Now, EAST, as an organization, is very proud of their practice management guidelines. Uh, so we really wanted to talk a little bit about how that interacts with the litigation process. So I'm going to hand it over to uh, to Matt Ecker, my co-moderator. Good morning, Dr. Morrison, Dr. Reyes, and thanks again for joining us here today. Um, a question, as Dr. Martin said, I'm the younger of his uh, his partners here, and I like to tell folks the younger, better-looking one with more hair. Um, <laughs> and five five to six years out of out of residency and fellowship, you know, you're still you're still getting your legs under yourself and getting comfortable with with trauma and critical care, and which is obviously a, a high-risk business and emergency medicine as well, Dr. Reyes. But um, I think one of the one of the difficult things is assimilating uh, the amount of information you know we put into practice in this field, and then realizing that how do you organize it? And as, as all of our professional societies do with the the management guidelines that come out, the evidence is not always level one evidence, and uh, you're left with a lot of gray areas. But it's it's as good as we get sometimes. So let me ask both of you your your opinion and how you apply it and the implications for the. The, the medical legal side, but are you obligated to follow these guidelines? Because there's obviously a lot of institutional bias I think we've all run into where these things get adopted, not necessarily universally, and everyone practices somewhat independently and uh, they're using their good judgment. But are you are you obligated to follow guidelines like this if you belong to, you know, the East or uh, American College of Emergency Physicians? What do you gentlemen feel about that? Um, I'll, I'll take this one first, if, if you don't mind. I think as a practicing surgeon, as a practicing clinician, you're obligated to know about them. And I think if you're a trauma surgeon, you're obligated to be familiar with them. I don't think that translates into necessarily being always obligated to follow them. And, um, you know, we'll get into the limitation of guidelines, I think, in a few minutes. But basically, you know, for the start, you're obligated to do what you think is the best care for the patient at that particular time. You know, very often that will be congruent with the guidelines. And, uh, you know, and the, and, and the guidelines are becoming very, very rigorous now. And the guidelines will also frequently, frequently have that kind of disclaimer on them. You're obligated to do what you think is in the best interest of the patient at that particular time. But obviously, if you honestly believe what the guidelines say and what the, is best for the patient conflicts, then you're obviously, not only are you obligated to do what you think is the best for the patient, but it's not absolutely clear, again, as I think we'll get into this, that just following the guidelines really provides you with a lot of shield if the case ever comes up for litigation. Yeah, you bring up uh, a lot of good points. Um, first of all, guidelines are there. Uh, because the, the impression of a guideline is that it's based on evidence-based medicine, that it is approaching the, the, you know, the a standard of care that we all try to achieve. Uh, but, you know, since it is very generalized, uh, you know, each case is going to be slightly different, and it's still our duty actually, as you say, to do what's best for the patient, which may not perfectly fit with that particular guideline. So. Uh, that kind of brings up interesting points about when uh, a guideline can be used as a shield, basically saying, you know, even though there was a bad outcome and, you know, even though 
uh, I'm being sued, I follow the guideline, which means I, I followed evidence-based medicine. So that's using it as a shield. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately, uh, it could be used against us as well. So a plaintiff's attorney can use it as a sword saying, you didn't follow this guideline. So you can imagine the type of counter-argument that each side will bring. And it's the idea that it really underscores the limitation of uh, practice guidelines, is that uh, they do provide this kind of uh, image of being a standard of care, but at the same time, I think that medicine or the knowledge base of medicine is so large, there's uh, many different, uh, you know, experts, so to speak, or consensus that there's always the potential that there'll be a different interpretation. Uh, so one general rule about practice guidelines, if I'm an author of a practice guideline, is is not to be not to micromanage too much, uh, because I think that you write yourself into a guideline that becomes too difficult to follow, and it also opens up to criticism to other, you know, expert uh, uh, opinions. So there's lots of issues about clinical practice guidelines. It, I guess the, the the basic summary is is that, you know, we are we understand that we're trying to follow it. Uh, but it also ha is a kind of evolving body of information that always has to be reviewed. Um, so that's, that's one important thing about keeping up to date on, on evidence-based med medicine by updating the clinical practice guidelines as well. And, and how do you feel, I'm, I'm curious, uh, having practiced at a couple institutions, when, when you see kind of an institutional practice that is, uh, whether it be from dogma and that, that particular group or, or the surgeons present at the time that differs from a guideline that comes from a national organization, how do you what do, what do you think both from from a professional standpoint um, about what you obviously have to do what you think is right for your patient, but reconciling those two, um, let's say as you mentioned, as these guidelines evolve. Um, but early on, how do you how do you recommend handling that? And I'll just give you an example. Say, you know, the east uh, the C spine clearance algorithm now with with high quality CT uh, in patients that are obtunded, and say they do end up having a, a spinal injury, even though your your CT came back as negative and you you cleared their collar. Um, I, where do you if you put yourself in that difficult situation? How do you how do you find yourself reconciling these things? Well. Uh, you know, from a defense perspective, if you faithfully follow the guidelines, then your defense attorney is going to say, look, I followed the guideline. I mean, that's the essence of using using it as a shield, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but as, as a, like I said, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the difficult thing about malpractice is that, you know, if there's any room in an argument to, that, to, to exploit, uh, an attorney will exploit it, you know. So we all know that we could follow guidelines and still miss a diagnosis. And so uh, that's why I don't think that clinical practice guidelines are, are – they're not perfect shields. I mean, obviously a defense attorney is going to use it. But um, acknowledging and anticipating argument or counter-argument is really where the defense attorney, you know, really makes their money, so to speak. Now, yeah, from, a, um, from a medical standpoint um, – it's it's basically what we've said before is that acknowledging when a practice guideline may not fit perfectly, you know, acknowledging that we're still charged as physicians to say, you know what, I'm following this guideline, but I still I still have a my clinical impression is that there still may be injury there, and, and we're actually held to that standard despite the clinical practice guideline. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, 
I think that, again, in that situation, being if you're the treating physician, you, you sort of have to be there and do what you think is best for the patient and also, you know, recognize that medical legally you're bound by the standard of care, which, as I understand it, is what a similarly trained person such as you is going and is going to reasonably do under that circumstances that you find yourself in. And as such, then, um, you know, if you think the patient needs an MRI, get an MRI if you st- and document it, too. Um, if you strongly believe in that situation that you cl- can clear a patient um, because of the guidelines and also because your clinical suspicion of injury is low, then, uh, you know, you're allowed to exercise reasonable judgment, but I would recommend documenting that as well. And in a way, the need for documentation becomes acute when you're straying from guidelines or when you're straying from, you know, hospital policy in which you have it right there, why you, as a practicing physician, again, you know, patient's welfare in mind, thinks thinks that that's the best thing. The other thing I'd mention about this, to clarify this, is remember, if in any medical legal review, I don't think, and, uh, you know, Carlo, you can, you know, clarify this or, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think, by and large, the attorneys are allowed to just bring in guidelines before the court without calling on expert witnesses. And so the expert witnesses will certainly be well aware of the guidelines and will be mentioning them and will be in a position to use them as shields or, unfortunately, be in a position to use them as the swords. Um, but that's in the context of the expert witnesses that are always going to be brought into these these cases. Um, it goes back to really what Carlo said, too, about uh, documentation. It's always better that your thought processes and exactly why you did something is right there, ink on the paper or, you know, electrons on the screen. And that kind of makes it a little more straightforward if it's ever for review. That, that's a great point, Chet. And, Carlo, a quick question for you. Uh, so, uh uh, having been involved as an expert witness several times, I, I think I've seen these practice management guidelines used as both a sword and a shield. It seems like they're often more powerful or have more effect when used as a sword. Uh, so, you know, I, I've certainly seen when when the, they weren't followed to the T, you know, the attorney holding that up and saying, this is the practice management guideline from your national organization, and this is the standard of care, and you violated it. And so that's the first question. So are these the standard of care, and what defense do you have in that situation? Yeah, it just certainly seems that way, that when it's used as a sword, uh, it seems to have more impact. And uh, it may be because of how it's being used or the context in which it's being used, because it's very black and white to show a jury, for example, that here are the guidelines and you miss steps three and four, you know. And then the next issue is, related issue is, is that if an expert can demonstrate the causation of the injury based on missing steps three and four, wow, that's really powerful, you know. So, you know, if that's where documentation becomes really important, right, because let's say that the clinician did not follow steps three and four, truthfully or faithfully, because they felt it was the wrong thing to do. That's where documentation can actually defend you and say, I didn't follow it purposefully. Unfortunately, the times in which that it's used as a sword, it may be because sometimes clinicians 
just fail to follow some of the some of the steps. So I think that when you're following a, a practice guideline, if you're doing it thoughtfully, excluding certain steps, if you're excluding certain steps thoughtfully, that's definitely defensible because then once you document that why you're doing that or not doing something, then that's, that's it's a very defensible position, even if you're not following the practice guideline. Yeah, I would, for everybody who's listening, you know, as a as a rather dramatic, although mock, example of how a guideline can really be used as a sword. And I remember when this paper first came out, and uh, I I looked at it frankly just before we we, we talked here, in the um, JAX Journal, the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, there's an article that details a mock trial um, that Hugh Gamble hosted. And actually, that was exactly what it rolled around, that the guidelines, the CDC guidelines in that case, were used as a very effective sword against the treating team for failing to follow CDC guidelines for treatment like of a central line catheter, leading to a very bad outcome. Um, and again, that's, you know, an account of a mock trial. It's not, not a real case. But I, I found it eye-opening, and so I commend everybody to read it again as this issue periodically comes up. Well, I don't know if you gentlemen have any more to say about the guidelines who kind of realize that they're not perfect, they're not infallible, yeah. and we use them to the best we can. But let's say that you've used them and, and things go wrong. And I think that Dr. Martin had a question for you when you, you find up uh, find yourself on the on the, the poor end of a patient outcome and they're unhappy um, and, and start to file litigation. Yeah, I think that, first of all, if – you know, the, the hard reality is is that, and I think we've mentioned this already, is that there's going to be bad outcomes, even sometimes when we do everything right, uh, regardless if there's a practice guideline involved. And so that's, first of all, I mean, from a kind of a risk management perspective, there's other ways in which we protect ourselves, uh, or at least we that I would recommend that we protect ourselves in terms of, you know, having better communication with patients and their families you know, telling them exactly what you think is going on and everything that you're doing to try to help help the patient, uh, documenting everything that's going on in terms of your consults and, and discussions with patients and, you know, informed consent and everything. You know, so documentation is always going to be your first line of defense, actually. Um, and then, you know, I'm kind of skirting the, the real <laughs> question, which is if you do everything right on a clinical practice guideline, Really, the question then becomes, is there anything more that you could have done that you missed? Mm -hmm. And if you follow a guideline blindlessly without really thinking about the patient, then, yeah, we're going to miss some patients. These practice guidelines are not intended to be cookbook to, 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 to save everyone's life, right? They're intended to help us. So then the, the really the analysis comes down to, on top of following the clinical practice guidelines, have I really mentally exhausted the analysis of the differential diagnosis, of the treatment, uh, you know, consultations, et cetera? And so, and then also de demonstrating that in terms of documentation. So there's more that we can do than just following a practice guideline. And I think that's how we practice. You know, we don't just blindly follow guidelines. We look at it and we say, does this apply to this patient? 
All right, and I think that's a great segue then into our, our next topic. And this, this uh, I just want to cover some practical advice from both of you. So, you know, you're, you're the surgeon and you did your honest best and you've just been served notice that you are being sued. Uh, and obviously that creates a whole host of emotions, you know, anger, fear, embarrassment, and, and accordingly probably creates a whole bunch of bad impulses. So, so what would the advice you would give to that person in terms of avoiding some of the mistakes that they can make in, in the heat of the moment, like like trying to go back and you know add extra documentation, et cetera? Uh, why don't we, we'll start with you, Chet. Yeah, well, that's the first advice. It seems so easy to state, but it really is true. Don't do something stupid like trying to go back and change records. Um, that will. Basically, I don't really see how you're ever going to prevail in that situation if they can show that you did it. And it's never been all that difficult, I think, for that to be shown, um, not electronically and not even in pen and paper where they could do forensic analysis. The other thing is you have to kind of walk a line. You certainly can't ignore this. Your insurer and, you know, in a hospital, your risk management should know right away. And I've, I've often... Um, if, although sometimes it's a surprise, a lot of times it's not. And so I've taken the time to be proactive and let risk management know of cases that I think are going to be potential lawsuits based on both the outcome and, uh, you know, my assessment of the family dynamics and how, how things are likely to turn out. Um, on the other hand, so you, you, you certainly have to, um, you, you can't ignore it. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, though, this is not something that should consume you. And it kind of find it, you know, almost heartbreaking to read cases um, online and in, in testimony of physicians who've really allowed themselves to get so affected by this that they can't function professionally. And, of course, then it can tend to affect one's personal life as well. And you just have to sort of accept the fact that this is kind of a occupational hazard of the profession, um, it's a good point, by the way, to bring up the fact that trauma surgery is not especially more litigious than any other sort of surgery when it's actually looked at. We don't tend to get sued disproportionately um, to other surgeons, but there is an incidence of it, um, and as I've said before, most surgeons I'm aware of have been involved in one way or another with very law various lawsuits, and it happens, and uh, to some extent, it kind of comes with the territory. It's certainly not anything to... To, to, to wreck your life over, and for God's sakes, don't let it be a spur to start developing or encouraging self-destructive habits. You've really got to sort of focus on what you're doing and, and you know, and, and being a good family member and all those things you were uh, trying to do before your lawsuit hit. I think that's the, that, that's the response. And then I'll kind of turn it over to Carlo, but I also can't resist on mentioning then that the other part of that is you do take an active role in your defense. You're going to be represented, and the, in general, the attorneys that represent you are going to be very good. They're going to be hired by the, the insurance company and your employer, and they will be fairly experienced, um, but take an active role in this. You know, Act as your own advocate to them. Do whatever you can to help them win their case, which is also your case. And then at the end of the day, you'll really sort of say, well, you know, I really did all I can in this situation. Yeah, uh, you have all very good points. I think that, um, you know, a doctor's uh, first uh, uh, malpractice uh, 
claim is, is a very difficult time, and uh, it uh, it will cause a significant amount of stress. I, at the same time, I think there are very specific uh, pieces of advice that I that I need to give as a defense attorney. One is is that it, it's certainly important with it from a documentation standpoint, not going back. It just doesn't look it looks disingenuous. It looks it looks like you're fabricating, and it just does not go well. Um, and as as was pointed out, an electronic record will d determine at the time at which you went back and documented something. So that kind of brings up an important point: is is that it's always better to document in real time or very close to real time, because that document becomes probably the most reliable in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, presenting it to the jury. Another aspect of documentation is, you know, sometimes things don't go right for other reasons, right? Maybe a, a physician or, or surgeon doesn't respond in the way that you feel they should respond. And then our, our, our tendency is to point fingers. And actually, this is one of the things that plaintiff's attorneys look for in documentation. <laughs> they look for for people that are actually pointing fingers, and that gives them clues as to what what happened and what everyone is thinking, and and I you know that's happened so many times that it just it it, it bears saying that trying to be as objective as possible when something like that happens, but not pointing fingers is is, is definitely the better way to go. Yes, I'm sure you've seen like you know back in the days of our paper records, you know someone saying you know. And then some idiot with the sum and the idiot being capitalized and underlined did this. Then that just looks very. Oh, it just makes. We're not making this up. I mean, this happens. And then you know, it it doesn't look good when it's it's displayed on an overhead in the courtroom. It just doesn't. Yeah, it just looks awful. And you think that you're defending yourself, but you're really not. Yeah. It just pulls more people into the case. It's just not a good thing. Um, in terms of. We talked about, you know, apology, and I think that apology needs to be relevant. And what I mean to say is, is that if you just get your letter, you know, you know, saying that you've been named in an action, I don't think that's the time to apologize. Um, I think it's just bad timing. I think the apology needs to be in the context of you being a doctor, right? And so I think that's one thing. I think people kind of misinterpret apology laws. Uh, with regards to that, um, you know, as a defense attorney, I would uh, caution the type of apology as well, uh, because I think an apology is different, or admitting fault is different from an apology, right? Um, I think that we could be truthful, we can update our patients, um, and we can apologize, but I think admitting fault is a slightly different thing, saying I mistakenly, I am at fault and I am negligent is, is kind of saying something a little bit differently. I know that this may bring up differences in opinion, but I just can't help but it, that, again, makes the plaintiff's attorney's job way too easy. Um, so, uh, But I do believe that I think with the, the current uh, studies and recommendations of apology laws, I think to apologize and say that I'm sorry that you're your your son died. I'm sorry that your wife died. I'm very sorry that we couldn't save save your your family member. Is very powerful for the patient or a patient's family because I think that it puts you on their side and and that's really the side that you were on when you were treating the patient. 
Okay. Yeah, well, you're not going to get any difference of opinion from me. <laughs> I, I I can't imagine that it's a good idea to reach out, you know, once you've got a letter, to reach out to the plaintiffs because you're now in an adversarial legal relation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's all discoverable. Wait, so that, that leads into my next question then in terms of things to do or to avoid. Uh, so there often is an impulse to, you know, you've been served this lawsuit, especially if it was a surprise, to contact the patient. Good idea, bad idea? What do you think? Well, I think that traditionally it's considered a bad idea. Now, that being said, if in consultation with your attorneys, uh, uh, with risk management, uh, and if there's this, you know, there have been some interesting studies about reaching out for purposes of settlement. That's kind of a different thing. I mean, if if you if there's a, if you're going to defend yourself, uh, uh, 100%, then no, I wouldn't reach out. But I think that there's some interesting cases in which settlement uh, really helped in terms of um, you know minimizing uh, you know the uh, the uh, the cost to the to the defendant um, and maybe pro- provided a little bit of a more uh, an opportunity for the, the patient's family and, and, and hospitals and, and physicians involved to kind of heal together. Um, it, it's an interesting concept, uh, and I think that there's a there's probably is a place for that, but I think the general rule still should apply not to not to reach out. But I mean, I'm curious to see Chet what what you have to say about that. I certainly would not do that without the ex- rather express permission and um, you know recommendation of whoever was defending me in a lawsuit and my, you know, and also my hospital's risk management department. I think that, I think if you go and do that by yourself, I think the chances that you could sort of stumble into a minefield are great. And certainly if you, with everything else, well, let me put it this way. I think it's discoverable, everything you say, that's not within the um, confines of attorney communication. I think... Once you talk to your attorney, then by definition, or you know, or peer review group, it's not discoverable. And so, one of the advices is that the reason you have your attorney that you conduct, you know, your malpractice defense and that you conduct your malpractice dialogue through him or her is precisely that, because then it's shielded from the discovery. Because otherwise, the plaintiff's team is going to be asking for everything, you know, up to and including the notes you yourself made on on the records when you were looking at them. So, yeah, I think, you know what, if you were my attorney and you said, oh, I think we, in this case we should reach out to them, I'd say, uh, okay, um, you know, your, your office drafts a letter, I'll sign it, um, you know, tell me what to write on it, and I'll do so. But I would be very, very hesitant to, to, to do that on my own once, you know, to, once you have that, that letter. And, again, the relationship now moves um, to being legal adversaries. Okay, last last question on this topic, and then we'll move on. Uh, and this has come up a couple times here. So you you had a bad outcome, uh, and you know you just got notice that you're you're being sued, and and it's a patient you know that that you're still following. Let's say they had a bad wound complication, and you're still seeing them every week in your clinic for wound care. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you still see that patient? Do you say I can't see you any longer because there's a lawsuit, and refer them to a partner of yours, or, or do you just say, I can't see you anymore and you're on your own? 
What do you think, Carlo? Yeah, yeah, you're, 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 you're certainly not obligated to – it depends on the practice, right? As an ER physician, uh, I have to see everyone that comes in, which is a bit awkward because sometimes that may happen, you know, active uh, cases, uh, you know, suits when, when doctors are named and these, these pa patients will come in, you know, seeking care, and we have to see them. But in the non-emergent setting, uh, you're certainly not uh, – and I would certainly recommend that you uh, – uh, make a means to refer the patient to another, you know, give them a referral list and say, you know, I understand that that uh, I'm named in a, a suit which you're pursuing and here are some referrals so that you can have your care continued. Uh, that would be the uh, preferred approach, and I think that makes the most sense. Yeah, I mean, I would wonder if you just flat out refuse to see them and say well, you're on your own, you could... If you had been treating them for, you know, a wound or whatever thing, they could um, they could allege that uh, in addition to your other sins, you now committed a patient abandonment. Right. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's certainly, and you know, common sense would tell you that you know that's not going to make your legal adversary feel any better towards you. Whereas if you just said, you know, because of this, you know, it's it, it's very difficult for me to continue to provide the care I was, but I can get you to someone who can provide just as good care, at least it sort of sends the message that, hey, nothing personal, I, I still care about you, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, uh, why don't we we'll move on to our final topic and uh, on uh, expert witness. So uh, we'll turn it over to Matt Eckert again. All right. Um, I want to approach this kind of from, from two different wings. I think when you get deposed and uh, sort of your preparation and then when you're called as the expert witness, not when you're you're being sued or named, but as say a, you know, for a part of the the defendant's team, um, how do you prepare? How do you recommend you prepare for from both your your perspectives? And then what do you do when the opposing side's expert witness clearly is you think wrong and and not uh, offering truly expert opinion or informed opinion? Yeah, um so two two questions. I think I'll I'll start with um the, the second of the two. Uh by saying that it's not it's going to be it's not uncommon, let's just put it that way, where you where a defendant will hear the the plaintiff's expert say something that you totally disagree. I mean, it's that's actually frankly common. And that could be part of the frustrating experience of uh, being a physician defendant. Mm -hmm. um, but think about what is the goal. You know, the goal from the legal perspective is to have the better argument. And so it really comes down to having a an expert on your side that just makes better sense, that's more more that's that's correct, and that not only correct but is convincing. Um, so, it, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, attaching emotionally to what a, a plaintiff's expert says is going gonna, is gonna to help you, uh, it's, it is going to be very frustrating to hear it. But at the same time, you've done your work, you know, in terms of, you know, working with your uh, defense attorney, working with the expert uh, on your side, anticipating those arguments that, that are good, that they may pose, that you can counter. And, and, and then certainly obliterating the, the, the poorly constructed argument. Uh, so Jeff answers the second question. The first question is, is it kind of 
goes into the first question in terms of how do you prepare on either side. And it's really uh, just demonstrating exactly or, or displaying, uh, conveying exactly what happened, how, you know, practice guidelines apply in the situation uh, so that your defense attorney uh, can help you find an expert that that conveys exactly your, your position, uh, that, that's a very a defensible position. Okay, so a lot of this is preparation, and it's really preparation on either side, whether it's a plaintiff's expert or defense expert. Yeah, I would agree. I really have to stress the preparation. And, you know, the knowledge that, by definition, this is an adversarial uh, situation. They are going – the, the, the opposing counsel's job is to find expert witnesses who will rebut you or who are going to present a side of the case that you're not going to present. So uh, it's preparation. It's knowing the record very, uh, very well and uh, being very, very familiar. By the time you're in there, the record generally will be several binders long and knowing what's in there. And also just working on making a good presentation when you're actually in deposition in court and working with your attorney so that that happens. Um, and, and, and sometimes that is exactly how the case is going to come down, especially if you're in jury trial. The jury is going to decide which expert it wants to believe in more and go with that expert. And it may, and it has, it may not have anything to do with their credentials may not have anything to do with their argument, particularly in complicated cases in which, as an expert, you're trying to get across complicated medical ideas and complicated medical issues to basically a lay audience. It's going to be communication, and it's going to be just which expert the jury decides is the more reliable one. And that's, a, that's a, you know, maybe the difficult part for physicians that first experience, you know, uh, a malpractice uh, case is that there are different rules in terms of it, it's really uh, paying attention to what is going to convince the jury rather than relying on you know kind of you know kind of ideas of right and wrong. It's really what the jury believes to be the truth. And again, if you have the two, if you have the best plaintiff's expert and the best defense expert, the, the, the theory is is that the truth will come out. Um, but you know, certainly, and unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't occur. So the, probably the most important thing when you defend yourself is to be as prepared as possible to make sure that, that you're comfortable with, with your defense attorney, that you're comfortable with your expert, that, 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 that you understand all the nuances of, of uh, and that the, the defense attorney helps you understand, you know, what to anticipate and to um, focus on let the defense attorney focus on what really needs to be done is winning the jury over. Yeah, I think that that's true in both instances that when, you know, you yourself are involved in a malpractice case as a defendant and also when you're doing um, expert witnessing on the defense or, or even in the plaintiff, which I don't do plaintiff defense or I don't do plaintiff expert witnesses, but I have done some defense expert witnesses as well as some other medical legal issue. And uh, and that's really it. Um, those are the two key things, preparation and making yourself be the ones that the jury is going to believe. You, you bring up an interesting point, uh, that 
the being an expert for the plaintiff, uh, you know, basically a paid expert or brought in, and a lot of obviously that brings up a lot of negative connotations in our in our community in our field of practice, and some folks obviously do it, and they uh, uh, they don't appear to uh, suffer any guilt or or difficulty in, in in fulfilling that role, and and a lot of other folks look at it as uh, you know. Um, counter to their principles and the Hippocratic Oath and what we got into this for. I guess you can counter that there are, you know, there are bad physicians out there and, and maybe this is one way of helping manage our, our profession. But uh, I'm, I'm just curious from both perspectives. You already said you said you wouldn't, wouldn't fill in as an expert for a plaintiff, but um, how, your, your thoughts on that and how you've seen that play out in our practice today. Well, you know, um, as I think most people know that it's rare that you get a malpractice case that is so cut and dried with negligence that it's not settled. Most of the time with malpractice cases, there's two sides to it. The issues are often complex. Um, and so, you know, there doesn't, in my mind, really seem to be a compelling reason to argue the side of the plaintiff in a complex case, whereas perhaps if there was gross negligence on, on on the part of a physician. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I think it's comparatively rare. Um, perhaps some plaintiff's attorneys might disagree with me on that fact, but I really do believe that gross negligence and incompetence is relatively rare these days. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of the people who are doing that aren't really practicing clinically. And how each person has to square that with their own conscience and, you know, how they, uh, you know, look at themselves in the mirror every morning, I don't know. I do know that I, like most physicians, don't really think that the tort system is a very good way of overall improving the quality of care we get for our patients. I, I think by the time a case reaches court, essentially nobody really wins here. I think actually the better source of one's energies is really to just make it so that overall patient care is better. Having said that, one certainly would hope that one's defense attorney would be, and very often they are, very closely scrutinizing the credentials of people who are being expert witnesses for the plaintiffs. Because, well, for one, you know that um, plaintiff counsel is very closely scrutinizing yours. And two, yes, unfortunately, you know, it's perhaps a little easier um, and a, a, a little, you know, particularly a, certain points of person's career, it may be a little bit easier for them for whatever reason that they do a lot of expert witnessing. And um, and that really needs to be brought out, particularly if they're doing it in a field that they're not at, they're not doing it in your field and they're in a somewhat unrelated field. And as Carla would say, the laws vary from state to state as to whether they can do it, but there certainly are states out there where the you know witness for one side or the other doesn't necessarily have to be in the field of the uh, malpractice defendant. Yeah, that that is true. I think you know the states do vary on that. So the the, the you know premise what what I'm about to say by indicating that your defense attorney w should know those those nuances in terms of you know um, you know evaluating an expert witness and and things like that. Ultimately, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by by noting that for the same reasons that Chet provides, I could not be a plaintiff's attorney. Um, I, I'm a practicing emergency physician, and 
and uh, it, it really went against my grain, you know. So that being said, um, I do think that as with any um, professional uh, uh, practice, I think we do need to, you know, look at our practice, you know, objectively. We need to evaluate when when uh, you know, our physicians are are not doing things it's certainly for gross negligence uh, if they're if they're committing gross negligence i think it's our duty as physicians and as in the medical field to 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 self monitor um and i actually do also agree that i think that there are theoretically better ways of doing it than the current tort system uh but i have a slightly different opinion about plaintiff's experts i think that some of them uh do it for for good reason i think they sometimes uh, you know, and it, they have to have experience. Usually, you know, part of the uh, evaluation of an expert, I mean, one of the things that, that's going to be asked is how many times have you been a plaintiff's expert? How many times have you been a defense expert? You know, and, and the, those experts that, that are split down the middle, uh, hopefully will be a, uh, a little bit more, you know, unbiased and, and, and be able to provide uh, their expert opinion on a particular subject. So, but in terms of, you know, expert witnessing generally, I think there's some interesting concepts. You know, there's some cases where, you know, I think um, uh, medical, particular medical boards are are starting to consider, you know, whether or not we should really police experts because if they say things that are really don't reflect or represent uh, the particular specialty, then, you know, that is, you know, uh, unethical, and I think that we should... Uh, monitor our experts as well, and you know some interesting cases have come forward because of that. So uh, that's a that's a great point, and why don't we uh, we'll, we'll close with uh, on that topic. So uh, almost everyone I have spoken to who's been involved in several of these cases has a similar story of having an expert witness on the opposing side that that doesn't practice in that field or doesn't do that specific type of surgery. And I've got to give you an example of a, a thyroid case with a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. And the expert witness who testified uh, against the surgeon uh, wasn't an active surgeon, didn't do thyroid surgery, and, and in fact was his only job was doing VA physicals. But he was allowed to testify as an expert witness on thyroid surgery. So let, let's say that that happens to me. And, you know, regardless of the result of the suit, do I have any avenues to pursue anything against that expert witness who I think, you know, not only gave bad testimony but false testimony? Uh, can I can I sue that expert witness? I've seen some articles on people doing that. Do I have, uh, you know, avenues to go through professional societies? Uh, do, do I have any options? Uh, Carla, what do you think? Absolutely. I think that, you know, I've, I've done some research on this. I've written on this. Uh, because of my interest in it, because I've seen this happen too much, and um, I think the you know certainly the the first step is notifying uh, the particular society or specialty, both the one in which is relevant to the case as well as the one that the um, expert witness um, is in, if it's a different from the, that specialty. So that's one recourse that I think is important because you know. Part of being a part of, uh, of a particular professional society is is kind of uh, adhering to certain ethical standards. And certainly, if you're in court, um, uh, 
providing testimony that's, that's inaccurate or, or really misrep misrepresents a particular field. Uh, it's certainly unethical and, and uh, at, at the very least uh, going to the society to, to identify them is, is one way in which you can go. I think individual suit is, 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 is likely not an option generally. Um, but uh, I think that uh, the cases that I've seen, it was really going through either uh, uh, the societies, and I think societies are starting to take more of a stand on that. Um, uh, there's some unfortunate cases that uh, went through that kind of was counter to the, uh, to the uh, ideals of, a, of trying to monitor ourselves. And, you know, uh, there's a particular case in which the uh, defendant, or sorry, the plaintiff's expert was actually sued the uh, society for, for defamation and won. And so uh, there are some difficulty there, but at the same time, uh, that doesn't uh, uh, negate the fact that I think societies are taking a good look at this uh, and trying to protect their members. All right. And uh, Chet, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's something I absolutely support. And, uh, you know, like Carlo, I'm also active in my own medical societies. And that's actually, frankly, one of the reasons that I am active in my medical societies, besides the many other benefits, is that I think, you know, being a part of a society, being a group, kind of keeps people a little bit honest. And um, obviously, the situation is going to vary. But for someone who I think is basically, you know, committing sort of gross professional malfeasance, um, undoing that, I would absolutely support what Carlos says. And I, you know, I almost wonder if... That's something that it's good that the societies are looking at now because I actually think that's something that almost there might be more of because otherwise the instinct when a, uh, a litigation is finally over, regardless of the outcome, is just try to sort of put it up behind you and make it a closed chapter and, uh, you know, not dwell on it, which is, which is healthy. But, uh, you know, the better we can to, you know, make the profession better, which I actually also think makes patient care better. I think the efforts to to do that are justified. Okay. Well, uh, I think we're about out of time, and we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, this, this was a great discussion, and I really want to uh, thank my co-moderator, uh, Dr. Matt Eckert, uh, and again thank Dr. Chet Morrison and Dr. Carlo Reyes for joining us and uh, and giving us a great discussion. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east. Mm -hmm.